Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books in the Arts and Sciences panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia University's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows in Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature Dennis Tennant's book, Plain Text, The Poetics of Computation. First, Associate Director of the Heyman Center for the Humanities and Adjunct Lecturer in the Department of English and Comparative Literature Emily Bloom interviews Dennis about his book, and later, I speak with Columbia's Theodore Cahan Professor of Humanities Nicholas Dames about the book and our modern interactions with technology and form. And just a brief note, Emily spoke with Dennis while he was still an assistant professor, but he is now an associate professor. I'm here with Dennis Tennant, assistant professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia, who has just written a fabulous new book, Plain Text, The Poetics of Computation. And I have some questions for you about the book. Uh, My first question is, that this book brings together seemingly disparate fields of literary theory and computer science. So the question is, what does the literary critic gain by better understanding computation to begin with? And then what do you think a software engineer gains by better understanding literary theory? Mm, sure. Well, first of all, thank you for, for uh, asking me some questions and inviting me to do this interview. But um, I think first I want to say that there, one of the arguments of my book is that these two fields, literary theory uh, and computer science, are not that disparate, uh, and especially mm-hmm. historically. So one of the stories I tell, for example, is the cl- very close connection between, uh, uh, between Turing, between Alan Turing and Wittgenstein. Turing was Wittgenstein's student, um, and uh, he attended his lectures. Uh, the topic of the lectures was often for the duration of Wittgenstein's kind of writing and lecturing career, um, the topic was inter- interpretation. The topic was how, when we read something, how do we know that some, some, uh, uh, someone understands a passage or a thought properly? So that connection between text and of symbols in the page and understanding, which is some sort of mental cognitive uh, structure, right? And for the duration of his career, Wittgenstein wants to create what he calls kind of a more rigid connection between the symbol, something written on the page, and the mental structure. Um, towards the end of his, uh, of his notebooks and kind of in his later stages, he begins to think about this figure of the pianola, which is sort of a mechanical piano, where the connection between notes, the symbolic structure on the music sheet, is rigidly connected to the little kind of levers of the piano. And this is the structure, this, this, this problematic of interpretation, and this is kind of interpretation, hermeneutics, are central to literary theory. Wittgenstein is coming uh, at this question not just from the history of mathematics, but from the history of psychology, from the history of hermeneutics, of the problem of interpretation. Um, when Turing creates his Turing machine, which is kind of one of the blueprints of all computation, He's precisely thinking of, of, of a machine that, that has this rigid connection between the symbol, right, the sign, and the understanding of that sign, or whatever understanding is for, for a machine. So these two fields, I want to say, kind of that history of thought that has to do with interpretation and understanding, stretching all the way to you know, Plato and Augustine and Descartes and so on and so on, is that that tradition is kind of closely connected to the history of computing. And I want to, in a way, re, um, uh, kind of ex- re- ex- excavate and recover that history, that lost history. You know, often history of computing is explained to us or is told just in technical terms. So that's, uh, I mean, I haven't even answered your question, <laughs> but what, what do we have to learn? But even learning that, I think learning the his- that history of computing in a way is, is a part of the humanities and is connected to the many intrinsic questions in our field, in the field of literary scholarship, I think that already should help literary scholars to kind of contribute to the critical conversations around computing in general. I would say let's let's start there. And similarly for software engineer to know that software engineering does not kind of just start with the history of, of machine, kind of like the, the you know uh, 
computer as a machine to kind of connect it to bureaucracy, connect it to mathematical computation. It is connected to that history as well, but also it has this deeper roots, and I think that that gives computer science kind of more of, of, of uh, or yet another uh, kind of depth and complexity that maybe some computer scientists are not, especially young ones, are not aware of. Yeah. So that's, that would be my answer. So, how did I not know that Wittgenstein taught Turing? <laughs> I thought this was well, such an interesting moment in the text, sort of imagining Turing in the classroom with Wittgenstein. Um, so, the, fir the first way of phrasing that is, why did I not know that? Um, <laughs> and the second is sort of, um, what do we gain from understanding the two of them in the same room together? Yeah. Well, it's not a completely, you know, obviously I was able to reconstruct that, that connection between them using historical sources, so it's not a completely unknown connection. However, it is strange that in the many kind of histories of the Turing machine, so for example, when Catherine Hales was responding, she said, I read hundreds, uh, hundreds of articles and books on this topic on the history of the Turing machine, and never did they never was this connection kind of explicated in this way. I think part of the reason why it wasn't is that Wittgenstein's, Wittgenstein is a difficult thinker because he produced not that much published material in terms of like books uh, and the published material he did produce is incredibly kind of episodic uh, and you know it's, a, it's, it's not systematic you know he's uh, I mean uh, uh, after his early period he becomes to be a very unsystematic thinker and one of the things that they did for this book and for that particular story in the book uh, is to just read everything Wittgenstein has written, including all of his lecture notes. Uh, and those are, they're well available. And so that's, I was able to find the stories, like where he says this lecture cannot continue until Turing is here, and Turing had to go visit his parents, but we cannot, and the lecture was exactly about that connection, you know, that, uh, that connection between symbol and understanding. So I think by reading Wittgenstein kind of chronologically, and really kind of reading all of his the context, not just the, the published writing, but the notes and the lecture notes and kind of his students published his lecture notes, I was able to really pull out a very clear through line that I think relates to Turing's um, kind of seminal articulation of the, of the Turing machine uh, and kind of to really con connect them more closely. So I think that, that's it, yeah. Great. Um, so I want to get back to this idea of computational poetics, which I think is kind of the right. heart, one of the, the, yeah. the major sort of literary um, formal contributions of this book. So do you see computational poetics as a form of close reading? Um, do you see it as a version of book history, something else entirely? Yeah, so, I, yeah, so you, it's a great question. I think both. So it, it is... I, book historians do, I, I think what I'm doing is book history for kind of this digital book history, right, in some sense. But also by using the word poetics, I am purposefully uh, evoking a particular um, history of, of, of uh, like a school of literary analysis, which is related to formalists, related to structuralists, uh, uh, of both Russian formalists and kind of American, you know, uh, people like Lubbock, people like Shklovsky. Um, so, um, and poetics in, in this context means it is a practice of close reading, which pays particular attention to how a thing is made. I think kind of both Lubbock and the Russians, they both independently, by the way, they come up with this sort of what is poetics? It's how something is made. How is the text constructed? And by looking at the construction of the text, we're paying attention to the scenes. That, and the scenes is what reveals the kind of the technique or the, how, the, the labor involved in the making of the thing. So for example, if you look at your clothes, you can look at the, right, the seams is what tells you a little bit about the manufacturing process. Was it made by a machine? Was it made by a person? Was it made sloppily and in haste? Or was it, so how did this kind of garment, uh, how did this garment fit together? There's a famous uh, essay in, in Poetics, how was Gogol, Gogol's overcoat is, is made. Right? So literally, like, let's, it's a form of reading that reveals the seams, and the seam tell us something about the labor of the work of art kind of coming into being as an object of art, as a thing. Uh, and this is, this is a continuation of this. Now, of course, I'm 
kind of going further and saying that the seams of the device. So I'm trying to read the text, but along with the device, uh, and looking at kind of where that illusion of immersive computation, where it kind of not falls apart, but where it gives us a glimpse of actually what computation is, how this device in particular is governing the way we interface with it, how we sit in front of it, how we, how, you know, whether we are scrolling from top to bottom or from left to right, or kind of all those metaphors that guide computation and that we normally don't really examine, poetics gives us a chance to stop and say, well, what, what is a window? Why is it a window? Why is it a scroll bar? Right? It's unpacking those metaphors in some ways. So if I can ask you to kind of walk through what that would look like. So I'm, I'm thinking about, for instance, reading, uh, say, Lolita on mm. an e-book, right? Yeah. And what, just kind of walk me through what it would mean to analyze the, the text, the content, think about the poetics of Lolita at the same time as I am examining the poetics of this device, the ebook that I'm reading it on. Well, let's pick, let's pick an easier example. So let's pick an example where deleting something, and this is kind of an easy example, deleting something on your desktop. So you are erasing a particular text that you wrote, let's say, right? Uh, but as we know, that erasure is in part metaphorical. When you put something in the trash bin, it's not actually being discarded. So there is kind of a mismatch between the, the promised action or the symbolic action is throwing something in a waste paper basket and the underlying the physicality of the actual medium which is not really erasing the inscription, the, the magnetic polarities, the configuration of the floating gates are actually not being altered. So in that mismatch, in, in, in oftentimes we might not care. The fact that what we are seeing on the screen and what we're being promised through this kind of metaphoric interfaces, the fact that it doesn't match may not matter at all. So for example, many texts are pretty stable, so we don't really care whether, you know, the difference between the screen representation of Lolita, whether it's disk representation, may not make a difference in many interpretive practice. But if you are a journalist working in a, in a, in a difficult uh, place geographically where your sources perhaps may be their security or safety may be at risk and if you need to kind of delete their identity for example from your hard drive that that just surface erasure in that case is not enough you have to make sure that the trash is really taken out that really that nobody else can access these names right if they're written on yet another surface somewhere within your device and somebody can get access to that so this is where metaphor begins to fall apart. So then, if you understand that example, kind of the example where all of a sudden we do care about reading, not just on the surface level, not about what is seen at, on our screen, but also the mechanisms uh, of the computational ways in which magnetic polarities get recombined to produce this illusion of Lolita or Hamlet, or, right? So um, we can think of, you know, this is maybe kind of contemporary of future literature. Uh, think of texts, like for example, the New York Times, front page of the New York Times, right? Like that's a text. But that text today, if you read it online, is recomposed. When I give my computer to you, uh, uh, the, the computer understands that we are of different uh, genders, that we are of different heights, that we are of different geographic locations, and it recomposes that front page for you. It's tailored towards you. Many contemporary texts are tailored to the reader. And so you can't, reading just the surface representation here is just physically not enough. We would not even agree, you know, with Lolita, we have a fairly long history of kind of agreeing what it is. And we can say, yes, well, we read slightly different editions, but that's okay, it doesn't matter, the passages are more or less the same. But many other texts don't work like that. They, they, we would just not be able to agree on what is the front page of the New York Times. And I think that is my concern, is that there are many kind of literary and paraliterary textual artifacts that are, they are dynamic, they recompose themselves, so that if you move them from, and, and it's likely, I'm not saying that happens, but uh, uh, certainly um, something like an Amazon Kindle device, 
as you as you move physically geographic locations certain books may physically disappear from your device because they are not licensed in that locality they might be banned by a particular uh, government so you wouldn't we wouldn't even be able to have that conversation or that kind of let's get on the same page but well, that becomes that in itself becomes a matter of uh, poetics it, it, in itself just to get to the same page we have to do some critical interpretive work of exposing the mechanisms of the of the device and the software that runs the device interesting i'm now imagining a version of lolita where you have you know hack into <clears throat> humbert humbert's deleted files or where you can kind of depending where you're reading it from certain sections are censored or others are not censored right. yeah. yeah i mean i could imagine this is like a or imagine i mean and i think we you know we should experiment with it imagine a novel which basically like learns something about who is reading and then tries like oh this person likes flowery prose let's put more flowery prose or this person likes you know whatever they don't like this sort of plot so let's let's kind of change it out for Right, kind of per imagine a personalized novel. So how would we read a personalized novel, right? And I think we we are kind of in that we are in that world today. It's not some kind of science science fiction thing. And we start to see the idea of the readers shading into this conversation about the reader's consumer, right? In a certain way, like if you're always being marketed a certain mm -hmm. version of a text, is that... Yeah, I mean, I don't use the word consumer uh, uh, a lot, or I, I, the, the word I really hate is user, because it mm -hmm. always sounds like a drug user or something. Uh, I mean, it's appropriate for technology, but, but, but not for, for critical analysis. Uh, what I like to say is that, you know, if, if we are to read critically, uh, there, is a, there are certain practices of, of critique that are associated with reading words on the page. And, and the history of hermeneutics, and I find this, I find an explicit, uh, several explicit quotations to that effect. They assume the history of hermeneutics of interpretation assumes the underlying stability of the of the of the medium itself, right? Um, and that's fine. And they're kind of we build practices of critical reading and close reading around it. When we cannot assume the stability of the medium, that means that we we need to also supplement our critical practice with other with other practices that are not just limited to reading the words on the page, but include reading, for example, the software code that's generating the text, or looking at kind of hardware restrictions of access, right? It matters if you're interested in kind of um, the propagation of power structures through text, right? So those happen in the representational level, yes, but they also happen on that level of, you know, there might be a chip, kind of a copyright, hardware chip on your drive that limits access to, to particular portions of the text or what, what you can do with them, how can you cite them, how can you comment on them. If there is a physical kind of barrier to access, that becomes also part of, our, of the critical uh, practice. So do you find that you're arguing that the media in any ways determines um, reader response? It, I, yeah, I wouldn't say it's yeah. I, I, you know, obviously, I'm not arguing for like technological determinism, but you know, the word the word I like to use, and it comes from from media studies, is a good word. There is affordance. So, depending on one of the argument in the book uh, that that I make is that text, digital text, exists at multi in multiple media on multiple surfaces. Digital text is laminate, so it is at the same time on my screen, it is at the same time on my hard drive. Right, so that here's at least two two surfaces. It is at the same time at my keyboard. It's one and the same text, located, literally embedded in different media. Right on the screen, it's the liquid crystal. On the drive, it's the floating gate. Right, different architectures, different media, and each medium allows you to do different things. Right, so for example, screens, they're light. They emit light. They're visible. They're visible on the humans. Spectrum, right? Well, that actually matters for, I mean, it's kind of a simple thing, but it matters for the fact that we can see the text on the screen. That actually is the first, that's the interface, that affordance of visibility, that's an interface between your eyes, a reader's eyes, and the, the, the text, right? On the disk, the affordances of the disk, those are, the, you know, the floating gates are, they happen like on a quantum scale. We cannot see them. If you just open up a disk, to us, it looks just like a flat, 
featureless surface, right? We cannot read with our eyes or our hands on a disk. We need special tools. Those are the affordances of that medium. They require different tools and they require different practices of reading. So depending on where we are, if we kind of step one, if we accept that the, te the text is laminate, that it exists on, on, on different surfaces, and step two, point two, if we accept that these different media, they, they have different um, affordances, what you can, affordance is a fancy way of saying what you can do with the thing. How can you access it? How can you change it? You write and read and interpret in different ways depending on what medium or what level of that laminate uh, stratified structure you occupy. So those are affordances. Do they determine meaning? Well, they don't determine, but they participate, right? You can't count them out. So again, simple, a simple example is that a text that you cannot see, you cannot read. Like that's a pretty hard limitation on, 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 on what reading is or what interpretation is, right? So it, does that determine? Well, it determines you not seeing it, right? So if, if a text is white and white background, well, right, like that, that's, does that determine something? Well, it determines the fact that you cannot see it. If the text is expressed as a configuration of microscopic floating gates, so yes, you could read it, but it means that you need special tools. It determines the way in which you interact with it, or it uh, yeah makes a difference. So the ones, sorry, yeah, uh, sure, sure. the the ones that you talk about in this book, to what degree do you find these affordances to be coercive, as far as the relationship between these particular media that you're talking about and well, readers? I mean, to, 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 I say to, to various degrees. So uh, the examples I've been giving now is certainly mechanisms of surveillance. What are you reading? How, how fast are you reading? What passages are you underlining? Right? Um, me uh, mechanisms of censorship. Which words or passages or books or works are you allowed to see and which ones are you not? Those mechanisms are located, I argue, kind of within the device, right? They're not immediately apparent uh, at the surface. Um, so, um, um, yeah, I think, well, repeat your question again. Just, there was one more point I wanted to make. Just whether, whether you see these affordances as coercive in the examples ah, right so so those are those two examples are like strongly coercive right like you just cannot even engage for example right or they, they are coercive in the sense that they're learning from your they're surveilling your behavior if you're reading too many bomb making manuals somebody will come and knock at your door right like that that's just explicitly coercive there are more kind of softer forms of control so for example uh, on uh, Amazon Kindle you can see what passages other people underline. So that so when you're reading, you know, reading we expect reading to be a solitary activity. I, for example, hate getting used books with other people's underlines, right? Because it's kind of too distracting. But here, Amazon is trying to introduce this mode of reading where other people, and it actually tells you how many, 32 people found this passage to be interesting enough to underline, right? So they're in a way shaping your attention towards particular passages. Does that influence your personal reading of the text? I'm not, you know, I'm not sure, but, but certainly there is an attempt to, to be, that's kind of a softer form of coercion, right? Or you can, exam, you can imagine at some point that we'll be producing like condensed versions of this text based on, you know, eye tracking movements of, you know, like in aggregate, that's how people read and they usually skip the section, so we're gonna just, edited out or something like that. So that's, those are all forms of coercion. And I think what's important is for us to kind of keep up. We, we need to understand those forms of coercion, whether they're blunt, like you just can't read this, uh, or we're sending, we're sending police to your house, or whether they're more softer forms of coercion, or maybe we're just removing certain words, or we're underlying certain passages for you and telling you that, you know, pay more attention here and less attention here. Okay. So I love your description of computers as metaphor machines. Yes. And I, 
just love for you to explain that. Uh, what does it mean to call a computer a metaphor machine? Yeah, so, so metaphor, and, and I have, yeah, there's a chapter on metaphor machines, and I already started talking a little bit about the Turing machine. So first of all, metaphor, what does a metaphor mean? It means, it means a transference of properties. Actually, you can see on the board here, we were just doing structural analysis of metaphors. So you have two domains. So here on the left, you have software. This is, we're looking at the board with two columns. Uh, of, of nouns in two columns. And so on the left you have software, and then somebody is explaining software in an analogy to baking a cake, right? And so a metaphor is where certain elements from one domain, baking a cake, map onto the software thing, right? So like software is like a cake, right? A source code of software is like a recipe for a cake. You start kind of ma making, and that's the metaphor. In Greek it, it literally means a transference of of, of properties, right? So computing is metaphorical. So first of all, in the sense of, we already talked about those metaphors of windows, joysticks, mice, right? A, a computer language is just full. It's almost entirely metaphorical. And ask yourself, why? Why is that most things we know about computers? Why is it uh, told to us, explained to us in metaphorical terms? Well, in part, in part it's because the, the materiality of computing is completely alien to us. We do not know, you know, reading and writing operations on the disk happen not on paper or with pen or pencil or all these familiar technologies. They happen um, at a quantum scale, right? And at the quantum scale, we have like no very little language besides terse technical language to explain what exactly, you know, erasure means when we're talking about erasure of signs on the drive at the quantum scale. And therefore, we explain the nature of computing in metaphorical terms, in terms of cakes, in terms of windows, in terms of right, things that we're familiar with. So that's one way in which uh, computers are metaphorical. The second way in which computers are metaphorical in that there is a literal transference of structures, not even of meaning, but literal structures. So imagine I, and this is we're, we're back in kind of this Wittgenstein Turing world is that I have a thought in my head and what is it physically so I'm, I'm a materialist a historical materialist would, 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 would ask well physically that thought what is it and that thought is a configuration of neurons probably a temporary configuration of neurons in my head to get those out of my head onto paper right so we have a transference of mediums we went from wetware of the brain to the paperware of, of, of notebooks and, and books and so on. And to transfer that so thought out of my head, I need to change the structure, that structure of neurons, to the structure of letters in the page. And that has different structures, sentences, paragraphs, chapters, right? We, the, those are the data structure structures on the page. When that page is then again being transferred onto the disk, on disk, you have a different structure. There are no paragraphs or sentences, right? Other units, they're bytes and bits and, you know, we can talk about kind of operating systems. And then again, that structure gets transferred onto the liquid crystal on your display. That's yet another structure. Also, you know, distinct, they're all related in some ways. What was in my head, on paper, on disk, on screen, it's all kind of quote-unquote the same thought that, that I had, but in each case, as it moves from medium, from a medium to a medium, it changes structure. It, and that is kind of a very special subset of metaphors because you have here not just kind of a semantic metaphor, you have a physical metaphor. It's a physical reconfiguration of the data structure, right? And something, again, in the term poetics has to do with looking, uh, examining the rules of transformation. How do we transfer, uh, transform and transfer thought structures onto the page, what happens in that tr transition, what is gained and what is lost. We know the two things are not equivalent, right? But yet they're related. So that's, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a type of metaphor. And then what happens in the transformation of a thought, a passage from the hard disk to the, uh, to the screen, right? And that, that process is also not transparent, it's not neutral. That process, is, it is a transformation process. So what happens in that transformation? And that is, that is a type of metaphor, that's the second way in which computers are metaphoric, in that they transfer 
and transform data structures from one medium into another. And that's where poetics comes in again, is kind of looking at the rules of transformation. I'm going to end with a question that I think is, in my mind, one of the most important questions of this book, mm -hmm. which is, what is at stake here? Right. And what political intervention are you making with plain text? Right, so I, so I think at stake, uh, you know, when I began writing this book, there, there's a number of uh, po popular conversations today that have to do about the nature of surveillance uh, the nature of our living with and within these socio-technological networks and systems. Uh, and I think the general uh, sense of alienation that people have from their immediate, uh, from their context of immediate kind of intellectual labor, right? We write, we read, we talk to our families, all through this mediating force of a computer. And I think there's a general sense of unease and alienation from those contexts. And, and there's a feeling of, well, I know something, we're being surveilled. I know we're being discriminated against by, by algorithms. I know that uh, these systems are uh, becoming intrusive in our private and social lives, but, but I don't know why or how, and I'm still, you know, it's still kind of the convenience of computation, the convenience of uh, habitation of living in the systems, of having these profiles and friends and you know social media, um, so so the convenience outweighs the political risks, right? And I think it's a good moment to first of all to unpack that easy, habituated relationship we have with technology. Uh, that's number one. Uh, but two is to actually be more proactive. I would say not only in being able to kind of interrogate our structures that 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 uh, are, are so influential in our life, but to, to be able to create other architectures of knowledge or ways of reading or right, whatever those practices, practices of creating thought, uh, you know, practices of intellectual labor, sharing thought, disseminating thought. Uh, I just want to think of ways in which we can kind of um, use the tools of something like uh, um, critique or critical thought or right a particular particular uh, in, uh, engagements from the humanities long-standing engagement with the nature of the text and to kind of make sure that those engagements they propagate all the way down not just at the surface level but down through the through the whole structure that general unease that one hears in contemporary political conversations and contemporary unease with technology I want to say that a big part of that unease resides in our relationship to the world, to the digital world. That there's something happened in the history of letters, in the history of inscription, right? There, there has been a change, and the change is that this inability to physically touch, kind of the physically perceive a certain, certain uh, writing system, certain, certain marks on paper and hard disk, right? And that we need to kind of recover that sense of literacy for all sort of higher level things like interpretation, like, you know, discourse, whatever, whatever, whatever the higher level social discursive practices that are, that rely on the underlying physical media. I think that's, that's what's at stake. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, yeah, thank you for the interview. I'm here with Theodore Cahan, Professor of Humanities, Nick Dames, who's going to speak to me about Dennis Tennant's book after he shared his thoughts at the panel. Thank you so much for being with me this morning. My pleasure. So I'd like to start by talking about this idea of technological transition points and how particular transition points had effects on you as a writer as you discussed at the panel. I was just wondering if you could say a bit more about your personal experience here. And then why you suggested at the panel or how Dennis's book made you realize that we need to be thinking of ourselves as in permanent transition states. So um, in reading Dennis's book, I was really pulled back to a particular moment in my own history of writing, which I think 
may or may, you know, I, I actually think is probably common to a lot of people more or less my age, which is I, um, you know, at a, to put the history in some sort of brief capsule, like almost everybody, I started by just handwriting. Uh, at a certain point, uh, I was taught to touch type much later than I think kids are these days. I think I was, I was in middle school um, on a, an IBM Selectric. And then in college and graduate school, and this is what Dennis pulled me back to in his book, I typed on a Canon electronic typewriter. And this is such a sort of evanescent technology that I, I, I suspect a lot of people actually don't even know what these things were. I mean, I, I think they existed for a very brief period of time in the late 80s, maybe early 90s. Um, but it looked like a typewriter. It had a little LCD screen which could show you maybe five to six words at a time. You would type a line of prose, but you couldn't see the whole line at the time. You could only see the five or six lines that showed on the LCD screen. When you reached the end of the line, and you couldn't, it's not like the carrier moved or anything to show you where the end of the line was. It was all, you know, inside the machine, in other words. When you reached the end of the line, it would print, and then the paper would move to the next line. Um, I got really used to this. I mean, I probably had that thing for uh, upwards of five years. And it one of the things it does to you, and, and this is what I think Dennis is so good at, is showing how the technologies of inscription produce a different relation to inscription. I was very used to having to form sentences entirely in my head before I would type them. Um, you know, there was no way that I could play with it after it was done, there, were, you know, I, I, you could maybe go back a, a few words, um, but after that, it was set. And so, in a sense, the thing had to be, you know, it was a cognitive relation of what was on the paper. The thing was entirely in my head, and I simply transferred it to the paper. Mm-hmm. When I entered graduate school, I got my very first uh, computer. I guess right. It was a, it was, a, I think, a, an early MacBook. And one of these big sort of clumsy things that weighed, you know, six pounds, but it was a revelation in certain ways. But it, for me, it felt like a disaster had befallen me because for the first time I could see my writing as it was happening and I could fix, at any point I could fix anything. Now, it probably has something to do with the fact I was also entering graduate school at this time, right? So I had that kind of loss of confidence everybody does. (laughs) But... The compulsion to continually revise as you write, which was something that the electronic typewriter made more or less impossible, was paralyzing for me. And I felt as if I had forgotten how to write. And this feeling really lasted for two, three years as I got used to the new medium. And when I say it lasted for two, three years, I mean, I still feel at some level a kind of yearning for the fluency that I felt I had when I was a lot younger and and, uh, the the sense of almost vertigo sitting in front of the screen, realizing that nothing is ever permanent. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, you know, one of, the, one of the things that happened to me in the shift was I began to feel like the words were no longer in my head, but they belonged to the screen. And I was manipulating them on the screen rather than transferring a cognitive uh, fact onto paper. So now, you know, different people have different reactions to this. Other people have been entranced by that moment and feel like now, finally, like this, you know, this is the way that I should be writing. But the that transition point and the attention which it made me pay to my own writing processes was a really sort of almost like, I want to almost say trauma, kind of formative trauma for me mm-hmm. as a writer. Dennis reminded me of that moment and in some sense reminded me that I may never have become fully habituated to writing on the screen, if only because even some of the aspects of, of um, you know, pro- programs have changed, um, interfaces have changed subtly. So it does feel now like we live in a situation where the process of inscription is constantly getting updated. We're constantly getting thrown off um, and our, our feeling of habituation never lasts very long. Um, and this has consequences of some sort. It, I mean, there's many consequences that Dennis lays out, but I think it's just bringing us back to that sense of discomfort the first time you encounter a writing technology is a really powerful thing for a book to do. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, as a, as a late-stage graduate student, mm-hmm. someone who's, um, who's switched between writing media um, through through my career, I find that very powerful. Um, 
And I remember the first time that I started writing in the program that I currently use mm -hmm. and just feeling the, I felt a sort of freedom because I could have all my notes in one place. And mm -hmm. then, mm -hmm. so I didn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't constantly switching between documents that the older program had, had limited me to. And I find this really interesting to think about, for me, I would never have, have considered um, not being able to look at everything on my screen as something limiting. Yeah. So I find that interesting. And I, 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 this dichotomy between having something in your head and having something in the machine that you were speaking mm -hmm. about, I mm -hmm. found mm -hmm. particularly intriguing. And I was wondering if maybe you could just say a little bit more about that. Um, yeah, do you, I mean, it, it, I, I used to I used to joke with friends when I was complaining about this. The the the, the image that came to mind was something I'd heard once about uh, of all people Mozart. You know, having mm -hmm. having the entire work in his head yeah. prior to transcribing it. And I thought, like, well, I had a brief glimpse of that before <laughs> before the computer came along. I could have whole sentences in my head um, soundlessly. That is, I, I don't think mm -hmm. I, I, I. In some ways, I think I. I thought of them spatialized, but the sentence was complete and I could just simply transfer it to the page. That, I feel, no longer happens to me. Mm -hmm. I The sentence is always in flux and so it doesn't live in my head, nor does it even really live on the screen maybe. It, 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 where it lives is unclear for me now, to be honest. I think that's a that's been a kind of crisis for me. Um, I, I suspect, though, it's merely one generational crisis, you know, and, and um, I, I don't think when I see younger people or I see my own kids, for instance, writing, I don't think they experience it as a crisis, but I'm sure their own crises will come, um, whatever that will look like. But I think they're much more comfortable feeling like the sentence doesn't exist in any particular space, even necessarily the space of their head. It may exist for them on screen, it may exist in the cloud. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Dennis is asking us here is to think about, you know, this sounds uh, like a somewhat flippant way to put it, but where does the writing exist? Um, and that is both a practical technological question, but it's also a, an ideological question. Where do we think the sentence exists? Does it, does it live on screen? Does it live in the cloud? Does it live inside the computer somehow, mm -hmm. in our heads, um, when printed? You know, our inability to answer that question, I think, has all sorts of consequences that one of the things Dennis demonstrates is even a kind of legal consequence. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we don't, we don't know what the text is anymore. Right. Um, and, and I think that that's, a, that's very revealing. And this may seem like a kind of crisis of writer's block, but it, it has practical consequences. Absolutely. And I think um, now with the legal field of intellectual property becoming mm -hmm. such a, a hot button topic that is even more apparent and at the forefront of what people are thinking about right 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 and 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 the consequences for scholarship um you know this is a topic well known among manuscript scholars we don't have for contemporary writers we don't have the same kinds of records of revisions that one does for writers say prior to the computer interface right. um, those revisions are actually happening continually in a place where they're you know, if they're registered, they're not registered in a way that's accessible to us. So it's a, it's a loss, I think, as far as thinking through exactly where the revision, seeing the revisions happen. Um, but, you know, maybe, maybe it actually simply points out how invisible all revision is, I guess, right? I, you know, I suppose when I was writing on the electronic typewriter, I did the revisions in my head, and then the sentence was sort of immutable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there may have, I, I may have had printed drafts that I then worked through with a pen, which I, I don't think I ever really saved. But for the most part, the most of the labor revision was purely cognitive, and in that sense, also invisible. True. Yeah, and maybe we could, we could think about that idea and switch slightly to talk about the history of the book, which is yeah. related, and yeah. something else that you brought up at the panel, um, and how something you mentioned, how Dennis seeks to tie modern computers into this long history of the book, in particular through his discussion of form and format, which mm -hmm. I think is related mm -hmm. to this idea of the sentence and having a form and living, which I find really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially as a medievalist, this was particularly intriguing to me because I work with the new technology of the book 
Um, right. And I'm working with repertoires that are on the edge of oral and literate. And so, yeah, uh, that revision and people holding things in their head, to me, I have to encounter that through a medium that it's not designed. So I'm trying to constantly get back to this thing that I that is evanescent that I'll never be able to recover. Right, right. And so, right. Yeah, yeah, I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think what's... What's interesting about Dennis trying to tie the history of computing to the history of the book is a kind of lesson he's insisting upon, which the history of the book has been pretty good at sketching out, which is the evolution of a format from a kind of um, accidental fact Mm -hmm. about how writing is structured to then becoming more and more essential insisted upon and even seen as meaningful in some way or more and more integrated with the writing act and so you know the example that i kept coming back to and dennis points to it a couple times is the example of the paragraph and you know as a medievalist you you know a little bit about this right like Mm -hmm. the the paragraphs are are uh different in the medieval period than they are now but it has an ancient history so you know the paragraph starts as just an editorial mark Um, a sort of horizontal line in the left margin of texts in antiquity that can mean a number of things. It probably meant, for the most part, a kind of pause for breathing on the part of someone reading the text aloud. It was uh, almost like a punctuation mark. It could mean, in play texts, it could mean, it could indicate a change of speaker. Um, That mark there was a complicated evolution from antiquity to the Middle Ages. You end up with, by the you know uh, early modern period, the the pilcrow, right? The the thing that actually still looks a little bit like our paragraph mark in typesetting. Um, and then there's a funny thing that one funny thing that happens is, particularly in Venetian printing, they started to eliminate the paragraph mark and just simply use white space to indicate where the paragraph mark should be. And that white space ends up becoming our indentation. Mm-hmm. So first of all, the, the paragraph as a unit of composition doesn't come into being because people started saying, I'm going to write in this unit. Right. It's an editorial mark that has a purely, has a history just at the level of, of the mark before it starts to look like something you would write in. And it's actually not until the 19th century where composition theorists start looking at the paragraph and saying, oh, this this is a unit of thought, and this is what these things should have. And there's actually a, a Victorian uh, psychologist and, and writer named Alexander Bain who comes up with the idea in the 1860s of the topic sentence, which uh, now, you know, is taught, and we are, we train students to produce them, we look for them as writing instructors, but it's, I think, important to note that uh, the thing had to be invented before it could be written. And it's invented as a sort of backward justification of a unit that actually didn't originally have anything to do with a unit of thought, but merely as a space for respiration when reading or as a kind of rest, very much like a kind of rest in music. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a little skeptical about something like topic sentences. Do we, do we need them? I mean... It, it, um, it, it feels like, uh, has anyone ever actually seen a genuine topic sense in the wild? <laughs> or are we just trying to justify by going, you know, by the invention of uh, certain terms, something that we, we have inherited without knowing exactly why we've inherited it? Mm-hmm. So the, the process, that, that sort of weirdly aleatory process by which you end up with um, a, a unit that's supposed to have some sort of meaning out of decisions that have nothing to do with with composition, really, seems to me applicable to all the technologies we now deal with in various ways and all the various formats in which we write. And, you know, one might think, well, what are the uh, conventions or the formats we deal with when we write now that might now seem to us arbitrary, but that... 10 years, 50 years, or 100 years down the line might have produced their own genres, almost. Mm-hmm. So um, that's like, you know, that's an open question, I think. But it, it's a usefully defamiliarizing question. Yeah. What, if we, what if we thought for a second that paragraphs are not inevitable and um, could be discarded, could be rethought, or just could simply could be thought of as arbitrary? Yeah, that's... Um... 
That is a fascinating question. It makes me think of Twitter. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Maybe that's sort of a, yeah. an obvious yeah. s- right. suggestion. But yeah, the, the 140 right. character tweet is sort of now um, becoming a form of its own right. in the in a certain circles on the internet. I right. Would say. Right. So, that's yeah. right. There's the there's uh, and yeah. What will happen? What will happen now that we have the larger uh, tweet capacities? You know, the other thing that I've has, I've encountered, and this has been said to me, and I think is really true, although I can't quite figure out why, I do a lot of editing for an online um, publication called Public Books. Mm-hmm. And it is true that a paragraph that looks of decent size to us in print will be overwhelmingly large online. That mm-hmm. I have to always stress to writers, this is going to appear online, so the paragraphs need to be significantly shorter. They probably shouldn't actually be more than 100 words. Yeah. Whereas for particularly an academic book, that would seem ridiculously short. But there is something about the fatigue in going through a paragraph that happens online that doesn't happen in print formats. Mm-hmm. It's mysterious to me why that's the case, but it very much does seem to be the case. And uh, whether that's the difference between turning a page and scrolling... Uh, it's unclear to me. But even something like the paragraph, of course, the unit of thought, the idea that the paragraph represents a unit of thought, well, that's that's actually tied into the very format it will appear in. So the unit of thought has to shorten in certain formats to accommodate comprehension. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things are so contingent. And, it, you know, I think there's often a fantasy when you sit down to write that you're sitting in a space of complete freedom. But... Uh, one, I think, has to recognize the constraints you're under. That's something I think Dennis is very eloquent about. Constraints sometimes you don't even know you're living within. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I would thank you so much for speaking with me. Um, I'm sorry that we have to... Uh, <laughs> My so pleasure. Long, <laughs> yeah, thank it's, you very much. Sure. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Dennis Tennant's plain text, The Poetics of Computation. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Walter Frisch's book, Arlen and Harburg's Over the Rainbow. From Columbia University Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.